Hello and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Once again, I wanted to thank all of you for listening, for sharing feedback, and for telling others to listen. We've been getting lots of great feedback and certainly some critical feedback as well, and it's all good to us. We're always looking to improve and make the podcast better, so please keep the feedback coming. That idea of constantly trying to make something better is often seen as the mantra behind Silicon Valley. Robert Friedel wrote a wonderful book called A Culture of Improvement that talks about the history of technological innovation, but it's a story that most clearly applies to Silicon Valley itself. There's been a lot of talk lately about what makes Silicon Valley Silicon Valley, and I've got my own theories, some of which we'll be discussing shortly, However, what's really incredible to me is how many people just focus on the superficial aspects of it. Over the last few years, I've ended up meeting with tons of people, often European politicians or European company officials, all trying to understand what makes Silicon Valley Silicon Valley so they can go back home and build their own Silicon Valley. And they almost always focus on the wrong things. They talk about the good universities and the venture capital money and think that they just need to throw money at a local university and build a fund to invest in entrepreneurs and they too can create their own Silicon Valley. And the truth is, it never works that way. And that's because they're always missing the real things that make Silicon Valley work. And that is the culture. It's the culture of information sharing and a free flow of information that creates the big innovations here. We can get into the details later, but as I've written about in the past on TechDirt, studies have shown that the fact that non-compete agreements are unenforceable is the single biggest factor in making Silicon Valley such a hotbed of innovation. And it's not just because of non-compete agreements, but what they actually created. And that is a, a culture where if you feel that you can make it better, you can easily go off and start your own thing or jump to another company that gives you a better chance. And with that movement of people, there's a much freer flow of information and perspectives. And it's that kind of information sharing that leads to a greater ability to tackle the big challenges. Unlike what many believe, the big innovation breakthroughs are often the result of many different people all working together to make incremental improvements. And often it helps to have new and different perspectives dropped in at different points and that is what, in, what the information flow in Silicon Valley has enabled. So to talk about what makes Silicon Valley so special, we've got our regular crew of Dennis Yang and Hirsch Reddy. All of us came here at about the same time in the late 90s, and we've witnessed Silicon Valley through boom and bust cycles. And we're going to start with Dennis because you got here a year before I did, so... I'll let you kick it off because you have one more year of <laughs> Silicon Valley experience. So uh, I'll let you jump in in terms of what do you think really makes Silicon Valley the, have this kind of culture today? So, I mean, I, I arrived here in, in 19, 1997. This is, I guess, my 18th year in San Francisco. and I beat you by a year, huh? 
Oh, I should have started with Hirsch. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> I was here. I was an intern, I though. I came here as an intern. Oh, my that first, doesn't count. My, yeah, exactly. That doesn't and, count. And you left for a while, too. Well, we'll come, we'll come back to my... <laughs> go ahead, Dennis. So, so I guess my, my point is, you know, after being here 18 years, I finally kind of feel like San Francisco Dennis is 18. <laughs> come of age in San Francisco. Um, I mean, it's, it's an eternity here. Yes. You know, to be here for 18 years. Um, but I think that, you know, one of the, the biggest things, I mean, I've been in, I guess, what, five, five different companies in those 18 years, um, one, of which, one of which was in Austin. And actually, prior to me working at a company in Austin, I would always question why people would move here. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's so expensive here, and especially working in technology. And, you know, it's, we're, we work in a connected world now, increasingly so. And I would always, you know, when people were moving here from, from, you know, the East Coast or interesting research communities like Chapel Hill, or, you know, I, I'm like, it's so expensive to live here. Why don't you just, you know, stay where you are, form a community? Um, surely there's other people that work in technology there. And since we're all connected, like, is that really that important? And after working in Austin for a year, I really did realize that, you know, the, the mass of, the, just the kismet of meeting people out here is really, like, <laughs> it's incredible. And, yeah. um, I mean, and part of it is because everyone moves around so freely in terms of, it's not just that people are here physically. You can, do, you can schedule meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, people are willing to talk about what they're doing. Um, there's an, a huge culture of, I think, cooperation as opposed to competition. Yeah. Um, well, and, and, and I think... And, and, yeah. Um, I think it's it's sort of this this weird thing that that from the outside people don't necessarily get, and and this goes back if you even look at like, you know the the early days when when Silicon Valley became Silicon Valley when it was you know Silicon right. companies companies that were working on chips, you know there there are a lot of stories of how people would get together and and meet and share even though they were working in competing companies right. and they were discussing and you have things like the Homebrew Computer Club right yep. where people were trying to build the first computers and it was it was a community aspect. And, you know, there's, and it's, it's tough to sort of explain why that worked. You know, what came out of that certainly yeah. led to tremendous competition. So it's not that, it's not collusion and it's not... But, but I think that some of the nature of the work lends itself to, to needing cooperation, right? Yeah. So, you know, we have things like, you know, HTML and mm-hmm. like things that need to be standardized and without the actual... Like working together, you can't create so, these platforms from which that these right. companies so, are built. So, right? so my my argument here is that yeah, you, what you need is you need that collaboration to to build the sort of common language or common right. platform or common breakthrough, and then everyone rushes in to compete on top of that. And that's something that I think is missing in most other places. Like you don't have that recognition right. that you want to create this level of innovation. And then, you know, you, there's, there's still tremendous competition above and beyond that. But people realize that the big breakthroughs create, you know, it sounds cliche, but it, you, you create this larger pie. Right. And then you can compete for the different slices of that pie. Yeah. And I, and I was basically kind of digging around in Bitcoin land last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I wasn't here for the original Homebrew Computer Club, but I actually, it, it felt like what I would have imagined. Right. Um, you know, there was like, the guy with the big long beard in the corner. Um, we were all discussing about you know this new technology, at the, which at the time was you know re- pretty pretty revolutionary from a technology standpoint. Still still trying to figure out what exactly I think it's going to be 
the super impactful application of, of that technology. But yeah, you know, that's, a, that's another podcast for another, another time. Another yeah. But, but the culture of it and the excitement of meeting, you know, regularly and there, there are tons and tons of, of meetups um, and meetings and clubs all around the Bay area. And that's, that was the, the one big difference between a smaller scene that like Austin that I saw in San Francisco, which was, you know, in Austin, I went to, there was a meeting of the Austin technology club. Right. right? And it was, I forget what it was called, but it was, you know, everyone involved in, in programming. And I went to, you know, and it was, it was a good group of 50 to 50 people or so. Um, and, with the amount of people that are working in and around technology here, the the small, tiny, like kind of niche scenes have enough critical mass to have to have a meetup, right? So it's like of their pe- own, of right? their own. So yeah. was, I think that back at that time when it was when I was you know working um, in Austin, there was you know Ruby Ruby was pretty big, and I went to one Ruby meetup in Austin, and here in San Francisco, there's a Ruby on Trails meetup, which is <laughs> for Ruby enthusiasts that like hiking, and it's like. <laughs> Yeah, it's like yeah. So and it's like really like there's well, enough there's enough people that just you know for, for and, these and tiny little factions. I, I think uh, Hirsch, I'll get to you in a second. I I think that you know, and part of that is that it again having all of these diverse opinions is not just the fact that you have this um, you know this critical mass of all these people, but right. through the diverse opinions and the discussions and the fact that whether you like it or not. You know, you're constantly running into people who are in the business and having discussions right. about it, and that's often where the big breakthroughs come through because you're having these discussions and something clicks. Right. And and you know, and and so the the new things get created and and you get those big innovations and the big breakthroughs. Yeah, and inevitably, you know, the the people that you work with are you know, it's I've been here 18 years and probably seen and met with and worked with hundreds, if not maybe thousands of people at this point. Yeah. Um, and who knows, you know, where, where, where you might end up in, in not even just one year, but two or, you know, hell, 18 years. So, um, and I think that that's, everyone is connected and more so now than ever. Um, and I think that that culture of actually collaboration really does permeate through, you know, through the Valley. I'm going to give Disagree. an alternative theory for this. <laughs> Go for it. So <clears throat> I think that culture of collaboration is present in a lot of places. I don't think... Um, that it's only in Silicon Valley. I don't think that explains what Silicon Valley ha- has become. I think that that uh, people feel like more of that is happening here because of the nature of the kinds of companies we have here. And it's not that that sharing created those companies, but rather that sharing is magnified by the sale of companies. And what I mean by that specifically is Silicon Valley happens to, a lot of the employment is, is around lots of smaller startups or medium-sized companies. You go to a lot of other towns, there's only one or two large tech conglomerates and anybody in programming works for that mm-hmm. one yeah, or like two companies. That dominates. Right? Yeah, and so people don't tend to move around around a bunch of like little companies. They're just in, either they usually shuffle between those two big companies or maybe they're just working at that one company. Yeah. Right. And it changes the dynamic of the town. People really need to reach out to people in other companies in this in Silicon Valley because you're constantly moving between employers. It's very rare you'll meet somebody that worked for the same employer for like 10 years in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Almost everyone is jumping ship every three to four to five years, right? Five years is considered a pretty long term at a company, I think, now in Silicon Valley. Most people work there long, shorter periods of time. And so you tend to have coworkers or ex-coworkers in different places. Mm-hmm. You reach out to them when you're going to go to another place. Uh, if people are having problems, their network of people that they look to are not with just within the company. They're across companies. And I see that in the startup I'm at right now. People have engineering problems. They'll, they'll call up people they know. 
Mm-hmm. And, and they won't get any some specific advice, but they'll just, you know, in general terms, say like, hey, what have you used? What kind of tools in this area? So those kinds of things are happen because the companies are smaller. And if you want to look at a, a place that has completely different kinds of uh, laws and, and a completely different kind of system, but you see similar things, you, you just go to China and look at what they do around mm-hmm. hardware manufacturing there. You'll see a lot of cross-pollination between hardware companies, uh, contract manufacturers, around uh, hardware processes and all that. You'll see the same kind of uh, collaboration, and you'll see the same kinds of results of that. Not just the cross-pollination of workers, but um, things like people collaborating uh, together in informal ways to create and, platforms. And creating and some, some really amazing, amazing innovations. Stuff, right? yeah. So I don't think that that is unique to Silicon Valley, nor that the, that the culture specifically caused it. I think what has really happened in Silicon Valley is an accident of history. That's the way I think of it. Mm-hmm. I think what happened was, you know, originally you had the real Silicon Valley, the hardware companies. Mm-hmm. And when the hardware companies, you know, the, you know, when the Fairchild semiconductors spawned through the trader estate, the Intel, and then a bunch of other little companies, those hardware companies, since they were here, they spawned certain software companies. And in that first generation, I think, of Silicon Valley, when you if you came here, you wouldn't have seen these things that, people, that Dennis was talking about, like the sharing and stuff like that. Because those were relatively few large siloed companies. It would have probably felt a lot like being in Detroit or in the Midwestern industrial uh, industries, right? But then I think what happened is those in, those hardware companies spawned software companies, right? Like you know the first generation Microsoft and Oracle and stuff like that, still large monolithic companies. But then those smaller service software companies came about, and now we have the next generation of that, not just Web 1.0, but the 2.0, the AWS spawned companies, where the cost of starting companies is so low, the capital structure to spawn those little companies is 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 based here, and so you basically have this proliferation of small companies, mm-hmm. and those small companies, by their very nature, depend upon each other for various kinds of services, whether it's on-demand services, like uh, or. or to find employees, you have to network. Part of being a successful CEO in Silicon Valley is you have to be able to network to not only get your capitals, but but also perhaps to get your first customers and all those things. Yeah, and, and your employees, right? So. And your employees, and so that is what has created that culture. Now, I, you, when we were talking about, you know, where when did you come to Silicon Valley? I So I came to Silicon Valley first in 1996, and I uh, started working full-time in 1997, and then in like 98 or so, I went to uh, Mesa in Arizona mm-hmm. and worked in a video game game company there. And it was definitely a lot more insular than Silicon Valley. I think, you know, I, I didn't really meet technical people outside of um, uh, outside of the game company, except for a couple of people who worked at Intel, right, mm-hmm. which was a big employer, a tech employer there. And there was a few Motorola people that I met. And then I moved from there to go to Portland. And it was the same kind of thing where I was working at Intel at that, at that time there. And uh, I mostly met Intel people. Uh, and I knew there was a few Microsoft people in town, but it wasn't, it wasn't like when I was working in Silicon Valley in 97, where you met tons of people from different companies. And then when I finally came back to uh, Silicon Valley in about 99 or 2000 timeframe, you know, it was back to being in sort of the heart of things with lots of really small companies. And you, just by its nature, you, you would hang out with tons of different people in different companies. Now, what was different about sort of the Arizona and, and Portland experience uh, people had the same culture. We're all Americans, right? We come from the same kind of universities and stuff like that, and we, we, we collaborate in the same ways. And I think the, really the difference was, uh, to some extent, really, in Silicon Valley, you are jammed up close to mm-hmm. other companies. You might be working in a building. There'd be like three other tech companies in that building. You know what I mean? Or let's say you just walk down the street to get a sandwich. Two of the guys you meet there 
just randomly getting sandwiches. They yeah. won't be like construction workers. There'll be other software people, right? Yeah. That, that wasn't the case in Arizona, and that wasn't the case. Right. In I mean, that, that's part of the kismet, I think, that, that really does yeah. happen here. It's the unplanned, you know, it's getting drinks on a Monday night with somebody, mm-hmm. and then they bring one of their friends, and they just happen to be the, the expert in mm-hmm. the exact problem that you're been, you've been trying to solve for the past two weeks. But right, I suspect like, that same kind of collaboration happens around, let's say, clothing design in, say, Milan, or fashion in New York, or you know what I mean? So yeah. I, I think... I think I think maybe it doesn't come across as much in those other industries because those industries, um, maybe there's more of an advantage to not being so open to stuff. Like if you're in like maybe car design or something like that, right? Like you might not have the opportunity to collaborate like that because ultimately you're working for these very vertically integrated uh, companies that make a specific right. product. So I, I, I don't, I think it's just, it's the product that spawns what we view as the, and in, in this case, the product, the software that spawns a kind of external manifestation and not the other way around. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think... Right, but, but I think, like, why, so why, why here? Why, why... That's the know. historical a- accident part of it. I think it's because the hardware precursors were here. Right. And if you believe me, that when the hardware precursors started here, uh, Fairchild Semiconductor probably came here for no better reason than the land was cheap, right? And the weather well, was Well, that good, was, I mean... You know? Yeah. I don't know why. I don't know really know the history. Well, I mean, Fairchild. I mean, the the story there is. I mean, you can trace it back to to William Shockley and and Shockley Semiconductor, and it was the, the Trader Estate, which you mentioned before. They they, they left Shockley to found Fairchild. Oh, and, Fairchild. That was Intel. Yeah, found it. I got it. Right. So they they left again. Yeah. Or two of them left again. Two two of the traders yeah. eight were, were two thirds of the founders of Intel. So I got the history wrong. Yeah, but it's close enough. And so yeah. and and <laughs> Shockley was here yeah. because of connections to Stanford University. There so some go. of that does go back to Stanford University. And you could say that you know right. back then and and there were elements certainly. Stanford did things in the in the nineteen forties time frame to really make itself friendly to entrepreneurial efforts and worked in terms of um you know helping like helping hp set up shop mm-hmm. in the early years was it was a big thing that oh, i forgot about hp right um stanford was was super helpful with and so uh, you know some of it certainly does go back to stanford um and and so and then also if you do look at the the people who left well, I mean, if you look at the Traders Eight, the eight guys who left Shockley and went to Fairchild, and then um, where most of them went, and what, you know, the Fair Children, which includes Intel and AMD and NetSemi, and, and oh, I didn't know AMD was from the same. Yeah, AMD is from the same same origins, and then but also Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia Capital and the the beginnings oh, of the mm-hmm. the venture capital, and so. To some extent, there is this element too that they then did give back in terms of they then funded the next generation, and so I think there is some element to that. But but I would argue too that a lot of that goes back to the the idea that um, you know of that collaboration and the fact right. that right. you know it wasn't that they would just take take well, the money out of so what they no, had but done it's a founder's effect. I think once you get the ball moving. Right. People tend to go to the biggest place, and then that only magnifies the effect. There were, there's also like little uh, synergistic little communities around Raleigh, North Carolina, the, yeah. you know, Boston, Harvard, that mm-hmm. area. There's, there's probably Austin is probably a little bit too, mm-hmm. right? And New York has a has a great New York, yeah, great. But, New York. but even still, last year I think you know I don't I don't remember the exact percentage, but it was I think almost half the the venture funding yeah. in 2014 went went to 
kind of go, goes Silicon to California. Valley. Yeah, yeah and, to and, California. But see, but that's the thing, right? Like once once everybody's established in a place, there's so much synergy. Why would you go anywhere else? But it really well, wouldn't. It doesn't explain why that place started. It's just that you know, for whatever. I, I'm trying to think of the physical analogy, but like you know, when when you're like uh, a liquid's flowing on a surface and there's a small imperfection in a place that creates an eddy and then yeah, more stuff and, gets and, jammed. And up there's there and, there's certainly you know. part of that, and you know, but again, you know, going back to the studies that I sort of mentioned in the opening, you know, there there have been studies that that sort of go to the that point to the non-compete issue, right, and the fact right. that that you it made it easier to go to another company to have that that sort of situation and so so do you, i mean does massachusetts do that like and new york they, and the state of washington so are those enforced because i know in austin i was i was asked to sign a non-compete right and, and i was very i was like what is this <laughs> Ma- massachusetts <laughs> yeah. they're enforceable okay um a few other states are enforceable but they the other so if they were to to change it to would be interesting it, to see yeah would, but so so but the the one example of that, yeah. but in the other direction is actually Detroit, right. where Michigan, uh, for you know basically the same period, you know starting in whatever mm-hmm. the late 1800s, Michigan had non-competes as not enforceable, right. and um, in the 1980s they changed the law, and they it wasn't on purpose, but part of the way they changed the law, they just rewrote it. Suddenly non-competes became enforceable, and if you look at the timing of sort of the collapse of Detroit, it maps very, very yeah. closely to the timing of that legal but that's change. that's just a correlation. It's mm. a correlation. Sure. You know, and, and, but you know, it's very close is what you're but saying. But it's very close. And, and people have studied, and what they saw was they looked at, I, don't, I, I haven't looked at this study in a while, so I don't remember exactly how they figured this out. But they had looked at the career paths of what they had labeled star engineers. And again, I don't know how they figured this out, but they had some sort of methodology for determining star engineers. And before this legal change, star engineers would bounce around. They would bounce around between certainly the big three automakers, but also some of the the other supplying startups in in the Detroit area. After the legal change, they basically stopped. And they would stick with wherever they were were working. And so the enforceability of non-competes became a, a big differentiator in terms of the ability to go to another startup or to go to another company. And with that, I think a lot of the information sharing stopped. And so you do have this counterexample where you had you know, an industry that was super su- successful for many years that, that began to, to fade. But you know, the other thing you have to think about there, though, is, is think about this culturally. When you have very large aggregated organizations, there's a, there's a company culture. There's a, they, they breed a certain kind of corporate man. Sure. Right? And those people are not, the corporate man is not ideally suited culturally, I mean, or trained to be an entrepreneur. You need yep. all this, you think about things a different way, you require all this support. And um, it's difficult for such a person to go out and, and, and start the new, you know, once his old company starts crumbling it's really hard for him to leave and start the new electric car company you know what i mean yeah but but i mean again if you look at silicon valley like yeah right i mean there there is you know there's a big need for managers and and you know company company people right but here in silicon valley those people are still much more likely to jump to startups or jump to a new job i mean i really don't think a 10-year company man from most of these places are the ones that are starting the startups it's it's a different no no and i'm not saying they're necessarily starting the new startups and in some cases some cases there are there are certainly counterexamples but but they're going to different companies they don't necessarily stay at the company and they'll go and they'll be a company person at another company yeah and but i think that that rewards 
you know, basically if you're in a company for a few years and you feel like you can do a, a bigger job, you know, you can either wait around for the promotion at the, your own company or here, I think it's perfectly le- legitimate to leave your company and, and mm-hmm. for a better job. Um, and I think that type of kind of culture has accelerated probably career growth within a company as well as, you know, it's if you can't find it within, you can move to another company. And I think that's very healthy, right? Like it, yeah. it doesn't, mm-hmm. it, it's not stagnant. And so, yeah, let, let me raise one other issue. And this is something that I've been sort of thinking on in the last month or so. And I, um, I had met with, uh, again, it was some European uh, government officials basically um, trying to figure out again, sort of, you right. know, how do, how do we go back to Europe and build a Silicon Valley in Europe? And, and I mean, if it sounds like, is it just non, non-enforceable, non-competes and yeah, but it's property not, rights or? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> and then what? No, I mean, you have, you, yeah, you have these sort of bigger discussions around it. But one of the interesting things that they actually, that the, one of these guys said back to me after we were talking about these things and they had been, you know, making the tour of Silicon Valley and, mm-hmm. And it was sort of a realization that I think this guy had had after meeting with a few different companies. And he said, you know, everywhere, you know, when they talk about building Silicon Valley, they talk about building a tech industry. And everything is focused on tech, tech, tech. And, and so you think about tech policy and they think about things like patent law because that's what everyone thinks tech policy is about. Jeez. Yeah. And, but he said, you know, what I'm realizing is that what everyone in Silicon Valley thinks about is not technology because everyone here is focused on solutions. Right. So they look at problems and they look for solutions. They don't look for technology. And, and people here, you're not building, you know, so there is some technology behind it, but right. nobody is here thinking about, oh, I want to build technology. You're thinking about how do I solve this problem or solve a problem? Yep. And so there's something really interesting in that and in that I think when you think about things in that way, when you frame it as solution solving, it sounds kind of um, elitist or, or something. It's, maybe that's not the right word. A little but too hippie. Not, not even hippie, but like it just it's too it, buzzwordy. Yeah, maybe. And but 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 I think maybe that's why some of the the efforts to so-called start a Silicon Valley elsewhere. It's focused too much on the Silicon Valley part. Yeah, and, and I think so. so. I think that's the more I was thinking about is like that's the mistake that so many yeah. people make is they focus on how do you build a tech industry. So they think about patents, which we've discussed plenty of times, is not the way to encourage it. And they think about like, well, we have to invest in let's build an office park. They do the cosmetic things. Right, they do the cosmetic things, yeah. and they and they invest in like PhDs and scientists exactly. because they think we need we're, a university. We're, we're going right. to to have these big breakthroughs in technology, but it's not the big breakthroughs that are the really interesting thing. It's the things that drive the real innovation are the small incremental things, the things that make things work, right? The actual solutions, the things that people actually adopt. But that's why I think, I mean, you know, Boston seems to have a lot of the same kind of solutions-oriented culture, right? The same, the MIT Media Lab has always may come up with weird novels. I think that was where like the first coffee pot on the do, internet was. But they right? do like, spawn lots of Yeah, and I think that's, that's you they, know, I think Boston is very close to Silicon Valley. They, they just happen to move here when they actually get sure. to yeah, yeah, I mean, Who wants to live in freezing Boston? <laughs> the weather um, helps the a lot, weather, by the way, yeah, guys. But there are lots of places with nice weather yeah. that don't have... But in the state of California, I might add. Like, <laughs> why isn't Silicon Valley in San Diego or LA, right? Like, I don't know. So, you know, that proves, you know, that... 
there's there's some geographical stuff and some of that first founder effect stuff, right? Or else we would have sure. a little bit of I, no, and I, I, don't, I don't deny that. I yeah. mean, there there are elements of that. But. I mean, I want to get I, like I like your your the, the solution thing is actually one thing when I'm talking to an engineer that I'm looking to hire. What I love to ask is, you know, what 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 are your side projects? What have you what have you fixed? Yeah, you know that tinkering mind, that curiosity, you know, like that. If if I meet an engineer and they don't have anything that they've kind of fixed around that fixed around their house with, like call it technology, call it not whatever, but like that's the kind of person that I find I'm meeting a lot here, right? Which and you can find them other in other places, but they're just there's a lot of tinkers here yeah. that are constantly just fixing problems, and maybe they're using technology, but you know, I think that's that's kind of really really powerful when when you live in around the Bay Area, so. This whole 3D printer thing, you got to remember, <laughs> it, it started out with people just wanting to make stuff, right? Like no one was yeah. thinking about having an industry or something, but it might start another whole other industry, right? Or and, many industries. Or, or many <laughs> industries, right? Uh, and, and destroy some other ones exactly. <laughs> at the same time. So um, that, that's, that's another podcast for another day. And, uh, but I think we're, we're, we're running out of time here, but um, do, do we want to have any sort of final thoughts? I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, and obviously I think that you know, there isn't one single answer, um, and there are a lot of yeah. factors, and I think probably all the different things that, that we've talked about play into it. But in terms of final thoughts, I mean, I, I wonder, and I don't even know if I have the answer to this question that I'm about to ask, but I'll throw it out to you guys while I think of an answer, is, I mean, what, do you, what, do you, what would you tell other people from other places that are trying to sort of build that kind of culture or, or you know, build their own kind of thing uh, somewhere else rather than here? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, obviously the things that we've been talking about in terms of the momentum of Silicon Valley, the access to capital, education, et cetera, the, even the free sharing culture and non-competes. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, we are in, you know, the, the, a state of the world right now such that we are, access to ideas is freer than ever. So you, if you are in a small community, you're not necessarily that small. It's harder to get access. It's harder to get the kismet to meet people at the coffee shop and whatnot, but I think it's there. Just don't compare yourself to Silicon Valley. Is yeah. what what I what I feel. You know, it's like, yes, things are good here, but what what is it about being? You know, I'm from Cleveland, so like, what is it about Cleveland that is uniquely suited to Cleveland that you can actually maybe there's an access to a smaller market that we're completely ignoring living out here in California, and focus on the types of solutions that you can provide. And you know, maybe it's great that you're you're the biggest shop in in the small town. And you have access to a lake that burns. Yeah, the river, but it's much Same cleaner thing. now. So what I would say is that, you know, with technology moving in the direction of having, like, really high-fidelity remote um, teleconferencing and things like that, as well as all these different new online educational places like, you know, Khan Academy, Udacity, Coursera, those kinds of places, mm -hmm. being able to surface students in, in, in different, or I wouldn't even say students, surface people in different places in the world who have certain kinds of talents. Those are those those methods are only going to get better. LinkedIn is going to be another one. Yeah. I Ocul think that, Oculus is coming. Uh, Oculus, yeah. exactly. There's going to be, uh, dist uh, essentially, we should stop thinking about Silicon Valley as a specific place. It'll become like this distributed notion of there will be certain types of industries that are very Silicon Valley-ish in terms of evolving quickly, hiring people in distributed places, uh, and, and being able to spawn lots of small, innovative companies. And I think you know, 3D printing will be one. Software will continue to be uh, another industry. And I think more and more we'll see consumer electronics companies that are very small and targeted and, and, and sh maybe perhaps even short-lived. Um, 
uh, things like a pebble. I'm not saying pebble is short-lived, but you know what I mean? Like <laughs> spawning very quickly, spawning from, uh, you know, like Kickstarters and things like that. So yeah. I, think, I think we'll see, um, you know, uh, little, we'll see people working remotely together in teams. And maybe we'll see even something more crazy, like, like people uh, forming ad hoc companies, right? Like yeah. tied together by like loose things like contracts as opposed to like some kind of uh, corporate entity, like open source projects delivering value in that way. We'll see, I think we'll see a lot of that. Um, anyways, that's yeah. No, I, and I think that's that's interesting. That might be another discussion for another podcast. But I mean, from my my standpoint, I would I, I think I would definitely focus on you know the very solutions oriented culture rather than thinking about it in terms of technology. And then the the other aspect is is really recognizing, encouraging, and um, you know, enabling the sort of openness and sharing of information and, and learning to get over the general fear that people have about, you know, the need to sort of hoard information and the belief that, you know, the great breakthroughs and the great innovations come from, you know, one company or one individual working at a company and coming up with that big breakthrough. I think the more you recognize that that, that sharing of information, the free flow of information, even among different companies, often leads to the big breakthroughs. And, and the more that you can do from a policy standpoint to encourage that kind of thing, I think, tends to have results and certainly has had results in, in this part of the world. So... Uh, I think that's it for today. Uh, Hirsch and Dennis, thank you very much for another interesting discussion. And thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week. Later. The truth will set you free. The truth will set you free.